Rochelle Young. And I'm Sarah Merrigan. And I'm Sam Tracy. And thanks for tuning in to season four of This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy, including news, science, health, and history. This show is an all-volunteer project produced by alumni of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, an international student-led organization working to end the war on drugs. Every week on This Week in Drugs, we hope to educate the public and decision-makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun while we're at it. We envision a world in which our laws and attitudes surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this week's show. As always, we'll start off with news and forecasts with Sam and Rochelle. After that is a This Week in Drugs history segment with me, your podcast producer, Tyler Williams. And finally, two very special roundtable guests, Green Party presidential candidate Jill Stein and hip-hop legend Talib Kweli. Rochelle and Sarah were able to interview these two amazing guests at the National Cannabis Festival, and we're very grateful for everyone who made that happen. So stick around and enjoy the rest of the episode. And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where we talk about some of the biggest drug news stories from the past week and some exciting things that are coming up in the future. So, Rochelle, want to start things off with the first story? Uh, For sure, Sam. So, for the first story this week, the Massachusetts Medical Society, which which represents about 25,000 physicians and medical students in the state, has voted to approve a pilot project of supervised injection facilities during the group's annual meeting this Saturday. So the proposal for the pilot program was passed by a huge margin, 193 to 21. And while several states have already considered legislation authorizing supervised injection facilities in the United States, and um, Seattle is already poised to be the first major U.S. city to allow those facilities, um, I believe this may be the first time SIFs have earned approval from an American medical association. Mm -hmm. So this is an even bigger deal because of the influence of Massachusetts medical um, society or the people who are part of those society mm-hmm. um, because of the many high-profile research hospitals based in Massachusetts that are affiliated with Harvard University. Yeah, this is super exciting. I hope that Massachusetts actually listens to them and goes ahead and does this. For sure. So there is actually legislation that has also been introduced um, by State Senator Will Brownsberger, um, Mm -hmm. that would let the Department of Public Health license supervised injection rooms uh, in Massachusetts. The bill is before the Joint Committee on Mental Health, Substance Use and Recovery right now, but has not been scheduled for a hearing yet. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts on this coming to your current home state? Yeah, I mean, this would be really exciting because I know that there's been kind of some grassroots push for this, but it hadn't been gaining too much traction, it hadn't looked like. Um, there is still, unfortunately, a lot of people who, who even push against, you know, methadone clinics and that sort of thing in Boston. Um, but this is really good to see because, yeah, the Mass Medical Society is really influential in the state, as you said, with all the hospitals and all of the universities and also of just Boston being, I think, kind of recognized as one of the medical hubs of the entire country, having them really leading the fight for this um, actually, you know, elevates it a lot more Um, because Senator Brownsberger, he's actually a big criminal justice reformer on all sorts of different issues. And so definitely not surprised to see that he's, you know, leading the charge on this. But he is kind of, you know, one of the usual suspects, if you will, in terms of these kind of efforts. Um, And so having Mm. a, a much, you know, broader group uh, like this, who's kind of a surprise is really good to, to have them on board. Yeah, it would definitely be if I don't know if any of the uh, major national drug policy organizations are collecting like a list of endorsements yet mm. for SIFs, but that would definitely be something to start doing for us, um, you know, to help states mm. build coalitions around this that include medical uh, professionals, maybe law enforcement, Um, and other supportive, less likely allies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So if any uh, drug policy organizations are listening to this, maybe you should start (laughs) working on that. That would be pretty cool. Or maybe TWID could start that list. I guess we could. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, and just as a final note, speaking of supportive medical groups, a resolution asking the American Medical Association to launch a review of safe, safe injection facilities um, may get a vote at, the, the, at that group's annual meeting this June. Oh, wow. So if we could start drumming up support for the AMA to at least do a review, maybe in the next year at their next annual meeting, they will mm-hmm. actually see that how successful it is. Yeah, and hopefully we'll be able to get maybe some more state chapters doing this uh, beforehand in order to try to build some momentum. So, you know, if you're a doctor or a public health professional listening to this, I know we've got a few and you're a member of one of these organizations, maybe, you know, submit something at your own local meeting and we'd be able to, you know, do the the state-by-state approach to to get the, you know, national organization on board. Yay. Mm Mm-hmm. And so for our next story here, unfortunately, is a bad one uh, to follow that inspiring story. Um, And this is that this past Thursday, Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts vetoed a bill that would have eased restrictions on convicted felons voting rights, uh, which would have restored them immediately upon completion of their sentence instead of two years after the end of their sentence, which is the current law in the state. Um, So I do want to talk about the broader issue here as well. uh, But first, I do want to talk about his veto statement, which was pretty bizarre. Um, And so it claimed that, for one thing, quote, despite claims of supporters of the bill, LB 75, which is the bill in question, does not relate to criminal justice reform, end quote. Hmm. And then it even goes on to say, and here's another direct quote. While the legislature may restore certain privileges, such as driving privileges, to convicted felons, the legislature may not circumvent the Nebraska Constitution to automatically restore a voting right in state law, end quote. So there's a lot to unpack there, but the first being of which felon disenfranchisement is somehow not a criminal justice issue. I, I don't see where that's coming from at all. Do you? <laughs> um, not really. <laughs> <laughs> this is this obviously affects people who have been entangled in the criminal justice system mm-hmm. um, and their rights. Um, I suppose if you took a very, very narrow view of criminal justice um you wouldn't look at the back end of it like what happens once people are out Mm -hmm. of the system Mm -hmm. Uh, but you're not really out of the system if you're still um yeah facing those penalties Mm -hmm. right if you're not like restored to your full status as like a full american citizen you know it it seems like they are even though they may be like off probation or parole or whatever at that point Mm -hmm. you still are affected by criminal your 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 contact with the criminal justice system because of your lack of rights yeah so but I am curious, like, did you take a look at the Nebraska Constitution to, to find out what he was talking about and why this wouldn't be allowed constitutionally in their state? Yeah, so I did actually do a, a fair amount of digging about this this morning, and I couldn't find anything. So I read through uh-huh. the Constitution or, or searched through for a bunch of terms because uh, it, it was pretty pretty long there um, for anything to do with voting or, or vote um, and disenfranchisement. And there's really nothing in there about this. All there is is really something saying that... Um, um, a general statement about free elections, that the right of qualified people to vote uh, should not be infringed. Um, but the felon disenfranchisement stuff isn't in the Constitution directly. Um, yeah. And this was also really just a strange statement to say that this reform could be un- unconstitutional because actually back in 2005, so 12 years ago now, um, the legislature passed a bill which shortened uh, felon disenfranch- disenfranchisement from 10 years after you complete your sentence to only two, which was successful. Huh. So it used to be 10. Um, and now they're trying to go from two to zero. Um, but that was constitutional. And actually that governor back then even also said that that one was unconstitutional constitutional vetoed it they overrode his veto and now it's still in place um so it does just seem like some strange perennial thing in nebraska politics to claim that reforms that you don't like are unconstitutional and then veto them Uh, but we also have precedent for something like this getting overridden before so hopefully they'll be able to to do it this time too and so it does look like there's a really good chance of them overriding this veto because not only is there that precedent but they've actually pretty close with the votes um so nebraska has a a unicameral legislature so only one house uh with 49 Mm -hmm. people in it and they need 30 of those 49 to override a veto and this bill passed with 27 votes um so they just need to gain three more and nine people hadn't voted on it so there are seven abstentions and two absences so they just need one out of you know one third of those people to to 
come on their side. And since this already passed, it seems, you know, following with that, it looks like a really solid chance. So hopefully they can do a repeat of 2005 and actually uh, override the veto this time. Awesome. We'll be keeping an eye for that and putting pressure on the Nebraska legislature Mm -hmm. to override that veto. So our next story this week is actually from earlier this month, uh, but I failed to report it back when the Maryland legislative session uh, had just ended because I was like exhausted (laughs) and not all there. Uh, But a bill that would allow the Maryland attorney general to sue pharmaceutical companies for price gouging has passed, has been passed by the General Assembly and is now headed to the governor's desk for his signature. And we reported on this bill back when it was introduced in January. And if it is approved by the governor or if he takes no action on it, the bill would become the first law of its kind in the country. Oh, wow. Um, this is a major move on behalf of healthcare advocates to fight back against what they see as predatory price hikes in the pharmaceutical industry, um, a trend that we have kind of highlighted in past episodes and that has been most embodied by quote-unquote pharma bro villain mm. um, Martin Shkreli, who, in case people forgot, increased the price of a particular HIV AIDS me- medicine by 5,500%. Um, <laughs> so back then, he had raised the price of a single pill for this whatever medicine it was from $15 to $750 per pill. Um, so this is actually a much more pervasive, pro- pervasive problem than just Shkreli um, and kind of happens frequently and without much accountability mm-hmm. um, across the pharmaceutical industry. It's just not usually not that dramatic, so it doesn't get reported as frequently. Interesting. And so I don't know a ton about Maryland, but are there a lot of, uh, you know, prescription drug companies based there? Or is the idea here that they don't even need to be, you know, headquartered in Maryland or anything like that, but just basically selling their products so it could apply, you know, have nationwide effects if this worked out? Yeah, I think one of the reasons why there's so much attention to this is because a lot of um, federal medical agencies are actually Mm. based in Maryland as opposed to Mm. the pharmaceutical companies themselves. Interesting. Um, So like the NIH is there, for example, and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of expertise in Maryland around um, how government funding for healthcare stuff works, mm-hmm. uh, much more detailed than I really understand. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of experts who came in and said, you know, like the argument that they need to increase the prices to recoup the cost of like research and development, for example, yeah. is completely bogus, like because they like X percentage of their research and development is already subsidized by the government. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had those numbers in front of me. We can include a link on our website to the campaign's mm-hmm. um, information if people are interested. Awesome. Um, but I think that's why it got so much traction in Maryland to begin with. Yeah, that is really interesting that Maryland just kind of happens to have probably, you know, like the highest per capita number of healthcare policy experts and that this is where that's been able to be pushed <laughs> forward. So that is a, yeah, a pretty cool uh, benefit of being next to D.C., So mechanically, uh, the bill would allow Maryland's Medicaid authority to let the attorney general's office know when it sees patients being charged higher rates for drugs. So the AG is not on the lookout itself. Mm. Like the Medicaid authority would be the one who reports uh, price gouging. And then the attorney general would first have to seek an explanation from the drug manufacturer before it takes uh, legal action. Mm -hmm. And uh, based on this bill, a judge could ultimately order the company to reverse its its price hike. Mm -hmm. Cool. I mean, this makes so much sense just because like, I mean, normally on this show, I'm kind of the token libertarian or being able to talk about that angle of this. And I've heard Mm -hmm. certain, you know, libertarian or free market defenses of price gouging, but those are very specifically in the case of um, kind of like natural disasters and that sort of thing with the argument being like, oh, if you can charge 10 times as much for a shovel when there's a disaster or something that it incentivizes people to bring them from other places and actually makes it work. But for this kind of for like the medication price gouging, I've never heard a good argument whatsoever for it because it's completely unrelated to that kind of effects. And this is, you know, just like a systemic all the time healthcare kind of thing rather than like for one specific disaster or something. I mean, I definitely don't want to give more arguments to libertarians, <laughs> but um, one one analogy that I I mean, maybe you can tell me whether this makes sense to you or not mm-hmm. is like with naloxone. Like we've seen mm-hmm. naloxone prices hiked uh, massively mm-hmm. in recent years because of the opioid epidemic. And that could I mean, it's not really a natural disaster, but do you think it would be justified to say then that we should be able to increase um, the price of life saving medicine because of this epidemic that is ravaging the entire country? With the idea being that it would encourage more people to start manufacturing it or something? 
whatever your libertarian justification for the shuffles is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I could theoretically see it apply, but for this sort of thing, it isn't the practicalities of it are, are a lot different because it has to do with like marketing monopolies and stuff like that rather than just moving around a commodity. Um, so I feel like it is a very different sort of situation. Um, I think this issue is super fascinating. I don't feel super like really qualified to discuss it more, but I think this may be like ripe for a roundtable discussion in the near future with someone who does understand like the dynamics between pharmaceutical companies, insurance and like Medicaid a lot better mm-hmm. to tell us how like these dynamics are working and how we can fix it. Yeah. Because clearly it is a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be really cool. So if any of you listeners uh, are an expert <laughs> on this and really care about this issue, reach out, email us. <laughs> And so finally, uh, staying in the healthcare policy world, our last story this week is that also on Thursday, uh, the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee voted to approve Dr. Scott Gottlieb as President Trump's head of the FDA, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, uh, moving his nomination to the Senate floor for a final vote. So his confirmation does seem like a done deal just because his party, you know, controls the Senate. Uh, But I did. So I thought this would be, you know, a good time to start talking about him and what Uh, his nomination and probable confirmation means for drug policy in the U.S. Uh, So as some background, Gottlieb, he's a solid conservative, kind of a very traditional swamp creature uh, who, on top of being a (laughs) medical doctor, has done a lot of work in think tanks and within the government. Uh, He's currently a resident fellow at AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, and a clinical assistant professor at the NYU School of Medicine. Uh, So he's actually also served as deputy commissioner of the FDA from 2005 to 2007 under George W. Bush. Uh, so what's caused the most debate, though, um, and in a lot of the articles that I've been seeing, and is also most important for this show, is his ties to multiple drug companies and business relationships um, and holding stocks and that sort of thing, uh, including a vape shop in North Carolina. Um, so I thought this was a really interesting huh. thing because, like, most of his business ties are these very traditional big pharma stuff that, like, honestly, any FDA head yeah, to Democrats or Republicans would probably have, but a vape shop. That's what I thought you were. That's what I thought you meant when he said he had these business ties to drug companies. I wasn't thinking vape shop at mm-hmm. all. Yeah. Um, so how did that come up? And like, what what is his interest? That's. I mean, that is a unique position for the head of the FDA to take mm-hmm. to be like financially supporting. Yeah. Uh, and so it does. A vape shop I because mean, e-cigarettes have been pretty controversial from a healthcare perspective, too. Mm-hmm. And it is really one of the things that the FDA is uh, like in the most uh, of the public eye for right now, um, just because there is so much controversy around those those e-cig regulations, as we've talked about before on the show. Uh, but yeah, so he was a part owner of this company called Cure Corp uh, with a cure with a K. Um, and it was a retail outlet which sold vapes and e-liquid in a vaporium that people could consume in. So I guess, you know, anti-smoking stuff isn't as uh, intense in North Carolina. Um, So it was like a smoke shop that people could consume in. surprisingly, because they're like a hub of tobacco. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could probably even like still smoke in bars there or something. It's surprising (laughs) of how many states you still can. Um, But yeah, so it's interesting because this seems that he's, you know, okay with vaping either. Like he at least doesn't see it as you know an evil or something like that if he's involved in selling it um so he probably at least takes the harm reduction approach um to seeing that it's better than tobacco perhaps but uh, yeah i feel like he if he's like a politically active person he like didn't see this as a third rail um like if it was a a marijuana company or something i feel like people would probably be avoiding it has he made any statements on e-cigs or his ties to this vape shop in particular? Like, so, say, like making any of that more clear? Mm-hmm. So he did say that he, if confirmed, that he would sell all of his stock there. Um, and so he'd cut ties with the company and he promised that for a year afterwards, he wouldn't take any votes to do with it. But it also wasn't clear if that just meant votes, you know, specifically about this individual company um, oh. or if it <laughs> meant like anything about e-cigs, period. Um, because, you know, if it's the latter, like that's going to be the one of the biggest things they're talking about. Um, and so it seems like, you know, having the head FDA uh, of the FDA having to recuse himself about that would be mm-hmm. kind of difficult. I guess my last remaining question then is whether he is similarly recusing himself from pharmaceutical like or like divesting from his pharmaceutical Mm -hmm. ties, because why is this more like a bigger deal or more Mm -hmm. like impacted by his role than his traditional pharmaceutical company 
um, business ties. Yeah, so I think it is that he's going to be like sell, like liquidating his ownership of those kind of companies or, or selling his stocks, basically. Um, but I didn't see anything about him recusing himself from a vote. So it does seem like there's a strange double standard being applied here because this is like a new controversial thing. Um, but it is also just a silly reminder, too, that uh, nominees and the heads of these agencies or staffers um, are held to a higher standard than the president because they actually have to prove that they um, have sold their shares while he actually hasn't produced any evidence that he's not running his own companies. But that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> um, so speaking of President Donald Trump, moving on now to our quick hit headlines. Uh, president Donald Trump has invited the Filipino president, Rodrigo Duterte, to visit the White House, apparently um, after a discussion of Philippines approach to drug policy. Um, which, as we've discussed extensively, includes the extrajudicial killings of thousands of suspects without due process. The warm relationship between Trump and Duterte stands in stark contrast to the Filipino president's sentiments on previous American president Barack Obama, whom he had called a son of a whore. The owners of a vineyard in Oregon are asking a judge to block their neighbor from processing cannabis grown on his own property, citing fears of the smell wafting over to their field and tainting their grapes. A member of the Oregon Wine Board of Directors said he has not seen any confirmed reports of nearby marijuana changing the flavor of wine. The Trump administration again this week fired Surgeon General Vivek Murthy after asking him to resign, which he refused to do. Uh, Murthy had nearly two years of his four-year term left, and the Surgeon General is not normally replaced by a new administration. Mm. The vacuum in leadership for the nation's highest medical position is particularly concerning because it comes at a time when the country is facing a nationwide opioid epidemic. The U.S. Postal Service has refused to deliver cash from a marijuana business to the state government in order to pay their taxes in Alaska, citing claims it would be illegal to do so since marijuana is banned under federal law. The business then had to contract with a private courier to bring it to Anchorage instead. And moving on now to our weekly forecast, uh, the 25th Harm Reduction International Conference is taking place in two weeks in my hometown of Montreal, Canada. Um, unfortunately, though, the price of registration is pretty steep. Um, and I'm going to go into a little bit of, of the price structure just because it was fascinating to me. Um, but and but it is based um it is a tiered pricing according to your country's income category so huh. because we're in the united states and it's like two weeks before the conference so we missed all of the early bird registration mm -hmm. and scholarship opportunities um the approximate cost in u.s dollars it for this conference is uh a thousand two hundred eighty eight to register um so if you do have a $1,200 to spare or a really good friend and are free mm -hmm. this weekend, you could join this conference um, and learn from experts and activists from over 70 countries coming together, including people who use drugs, sex workers, people living with HIV, um, and then the usual researchers, campaigners, health professionals, and human rights experts. So as usual, we'll include a link to the conference program on our website. And we also promise to keep an eye out for this conference earlier in the future so that you can actually like have a chance to go instead of just telling you about this cool conference you're probably going to miss. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hopefully they'll post some of their uh, videos and stuff online and we can share it after the fact. <laughs> yeah. And I think Jake from SSTP is going to go. So maybe he can like report back to us all of the cool harm reduction -y things that he learned. Awesome. Sounds like a plant. And so for my forecast, um, related to one of our news stories, the timeline is still uncertain, but it is very likely that Scott Gottlieb's final confirmation vote before the full Senate will be probably this week, and if not, sometime next week. Um, so to me, as I said, it, he kind of seems like one of the more reasonable nominations in the Trump administration, just because many of them, um, quite frankly, are complete clowns, <laughs> and he actually has it's experience. It's not a very high standard. Yeah, it's not, unfortunately. <laughs> but he, he does seem like, uh, at least on vaping, will be good on this this issue. Um, but, you know, if you feel differently, whether it's about vaping regulation specifically or just uh, more broadly his appointment, it is your your last chance to make your voice heard before the final vote. So even though, you know, it's kind of a done deal because of the way partisanship works in the U.S., um, it is still a chance to, you know, have protests or uh, try to get your senators to, to say something. So if you do have a stance either for or against, call your two senators and ask them to vote yes or no, uh, just because it is really important to be involved in these less publicized battles over drug policy, because uh, quite honestly, they're usually the places where the most change is actually happening.
And so that's all for this week's weekly news and forecast. As always, Sam and I and the rest of the TWID team have our eyes and ears out for the biggest drug and drug policy news from around the world. But um, there's so much going on that we may not get to your um, your favorite news story or event. So if there's anything you want us to know about, send us an email at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. We don't have a paid sponsor this week, but if we did, this is where their commercial would be. Are you listening to this right now? Do you have a cool business, political campaign, website, pet cause, or literal pet that you want us to tell our hundreds of passionate listeners about? Then you're in luck. For a small fee to help cover our costs, you can get your very own 30-second ad that would go right here, be read by me, and be listened to by everyone who's hearing me say all of this right now. So if that sounds good to you, swing on over to thisweekindrugs.org and click on the sponsor button at the top to learn more. Now, back to the show. Welcome to This Week in Drug History with me, your friendly podcast producer, Tyler Williams. Every other week, I'll be bringing you relatively rigorously researched history of drugs, drug policy, and other topics of tangential interest. As always, I'm going to begin with a little note on the historian's craft. History is more of an art than a science, so here's a little bit of exposition on my own process for this segment. I'll be taking listener-submitted questions, historicizing them as specifically and uniquely as possible. I'll do this by distilling the essence of the topic into one discrete question, contextualizing that question in a specific time frame, and then using primary and secondary sources to answer it, all in one 10-15 minute segment of audio. So, with that out of the way, let's get right down to the question submitted this time by Alex Betzos. Alex asks, what are the conditions that really led the US, UK, and other countries to move to analog legislation in the 1980s? So, for those unfamiliar, The Federal Analog Act is a section of the United States Controlled Substances Act, passed in 1986, which allowed any chemical, quote, substantially similar to a controlled substance listed in Schedule 1 or 2 to be treated as if it were also listed in those schedules, but only if intended for human consumption. These similar substances have been called designer drugs, but from my experience that term has fallen out of common use. Alex asked for the specifics that led a variety of countries to adopt analog legislations, Uh, but I've chosen to limit our examination to the U.S. for a variety of reasons. One, our listeners are primarily based in the U.S. Also, Western drug policy is primarily informed by what happens in the United States. Uh, Also, my background is primarily in United States history. And finally, it is kind of beyond the scope of the segment to tie in multiple pieces of legislation across the globe in one audio segment. Uh, I would certainly go over time. So I'll be rephrasing this question to ask, what might have been the flashpoint to move the U.S. Congress to pass this legislation? So, as we've talked about in previous episodes, the Reagan presidency was a time in which drug law enforcement and consequences really took off in a significant way. We'll be examining the period of 1982 to 1986, which covers the time period between my proposed flashpoint to the year that the legislation actually was signed, smack dab in the middle of Reagan's presidency. So let's get started. In 1982, a 42-year-old man was admitted to a San Jose medical clinic with the symptoms of advanced Parkinson's disease. For those unfamiliar, Parkinson's rarely begins to show before 50, so this was a serious anomaly. Turns out, it was caused by a compound called MPTP. I won't talk a lot about the chemistry, but suffice it to say, MPTP turns into a neurotoxic compound in the brain and destroys neurons, causing things like permanent Parkinson's. In 1982, this case, among others, came about from people who were using heroin, or at least wanted to be using heroin. Turns out, they had purchased MPTP from drug sellers who thought they were distributing MPPP, a substance meant to mimic the effects of heroin. 
the manufacturers messed up in the process and ended up distributing MPTP instead. Turns out, neither of these substances were controlled under the CSA at the time, and the US government couldn't do anything to stop it. Yet. A bunch of other copycat chemists were inspired by the case and began synthesizing it on their own. Sometimes they were successful and distributed the drug known as MPPP, but in many cases, they also messed up and produced MPTP and caused irreparable neurological damage to the people who used their product. This was going on at the same time as other chemists were manufacturing things like methamphetamine, MDMA, and a variety of phenethylamines, which all circumvented the Controlled Substances Act as written. In order to make a substance illegal, the DEA had to go through a lengthy process involving three separate federal agencies, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Food and Drug Administration, and the National Institute of Drug Abuse. During that process, third parties could contest the decision, meaning it often took years to end up with a final verdict on whether or not they could control a substance, and without an analog act, Chemists could just do some fancy chemical footwork and get around a ban that took years in the making. So, to answer the question for this week's history segment, was there a flashpoint that led to the passing of the U.S. Federal Analog Act? My answer is yes. The MPTP problem, or as it was popularized by the doctors who treated those folks, the case of the frozen addicts, this, along with a context of rapidly expanding drug analogs on the market, led to a sort of moral panic in the U.S. becoming the flashpoint. The DEA, frustrated with its inability to respond adequately and quickly, designed the Analog Act, and it was steamrolled through a tough-on-drugs Congress and signed by Reagan himself. I hope I've done an adequate job making the case for the MPTP debacle as the flashpoint that led to the Analog Act. As with any history, this is just my interpretation of what happened based on my primary sources, which were news articles and legal documents, and secondary history sources, which were also doing historicizing themselves. I'd be really interested if any other historians out there, or just people who lived during 1982 to 1986, have a different take on what it was that would have been the flashpoint to lead to the passage of the U.S. Federal Analog Act. If you've got a different interpretation of the history, send me your argument and send me your sources, and I'll actually cover your rebuttal on my next segment here. A big part of doing history is putting the research in conversation with other historians, and I'd love to take on any challengers right here, right in this segment. Thanks for tuning in, and enjoy the rest of the show. Now it's time for our roundtable discussion, which is a little bit different this week than usual. For this episode, Sarah and Rochelle were actually at the National Cannabis Festival and interviewing in the field. So the sound quality is pretty good, but there is a good deal of background noise that we couldn't quite cut out. The first segment of this roundtable is them interviewing Jill Stein, the presidential candidate for the Green Party. So sit back and enjoy. All right, I think we are good to go. Good. Yeah. So I was just saying, you know, I'm really honored to be here. It's a really important event. There's a lot to celebrate, but there's a lot of work ahead. And, and it's not only cannabis itself, but it's the many issues that intersect with cannabis. So this is an issue of freedom and civil liberties. It's an issue of justice and mass incarceration. It's an issue of public health and safety. And it's an issue of jobs and the cannabis and hemp economy. So it's all of that. And I think the more we can connect the dots, the stronger we'll all be. And what's really special, I think, you know, is that the cannabis movement, unlike most people's movements, this movement is winning. 
<laughs> yes. It's yes. a great time to be a marijuana policy activist right now. You're not kidding. Yeah. So on our podcast, This Week in Drugs, we don't just talk about marijuana policy. We talk about all different types of drug policy reform, yes. both in the illicit market and the licit market. And we know that you support the legalization of all drugs, not just cannabis. Can you talk to us a little bit more about why you believe all drugs should be legalized and what we can do in the marijuana uh, movement to yeah. support those changes? Right. So, you know, it's, it's clear... Uh, we need to legalize marijuana, and we should be moving ahead really fast to do that. Canada just scooped us on this, you know. She's Canadian. <laughs> oh, you lucky duck. Yes. <laughs> um, so this is like uh, right in front of our noses, and everybody from Kofi Annan to the former presidents of Brazil and Mexico and Colombia—they're all there. The four governors of the first four legalization states all just wrote a public letter to Jeff Sessions basically defending a legalization and that, uh, you know, it's like, don't touch our, our regulatory framework. So it's clear we're ready to move to legalization. I think what should go along with that right away is transitioning to a public health approach to all drugs. And whether they should be decriminalized or legalized, you know, it's a technical discussion that, you know, that uh, needs to be had. But it, there's no doubt we need to go there and that we need to move from a criminal framework to a public health framework as quickly as possible because the criminal framework is extremely destructive. It's destructive. And as a doctor, I'm sure you know that the, like, the health impacts of the criminal justice system on very vulnerable communities are even worse than the substances themselves in so many cases. Exactly. And in fact, the, the uh, way I've been putting it is that marijuana is a substance which is dangerous because it's illegal. It's not illegal on account of being dangerous. Certainly, it's far less dangerous than alcohol and tobacco. Um, and what we know is, from the medical perspective, not only that there are medical uses of marijuana, which is, are very, very important, and which we need to be able to uh, truly study. We can't truly study it while it is a uh, Schedule I substance. And, you know, today's the science march here in D.C. Well, one of the applications of science would be in the regulation of, 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 uh, of drugs, because if science were applied, marijuana and cannabis would be taken off the list of Schedule One substances immediately. Um, but beyond that, uh, uh, criminalization is very harmful, not only because of the uh, issue of mass incarceration, which is a massive issue of injustice, destroys communities, destroys families. Disproportionately impacts uh, low-income communities and, and communities of color. Huge, yes, yes. And, and prevents people from accessing jobs and education and housing. You know, it's really, and voting. You know, the, the millions of people who are disenfranchised from voting because of the mass incarceration and the uh, criminal records that endure long after right. you're out of incarceration. Right. And this is another actual, you know, cause for celebration today is that uh, uh, California's Prop 64 made a big jump forward by saying, if we, do, you know, given that we are no longer going to send people to jail for use of a substance which is less harmful than alcohol and tobacco, we should not be holding them in jail for the use of that substance in the past. And we need to apply current standards retroactively and essentially to review the sentences. And so they're the, they're the first state that has approved adult use legalization that has made that move. So what are other things that advocates need to think about once we have reached that you know, that finish line of legalization in the states? Like, what else do we need to actually continue working on to make cannabis, you know, a substance that is on par with other substances that are legal for adult use. That's right. So there's legalization, um, there's education, you know, there's, there's uh, the development of regulations. And let me just also mention that the whole context of criminalization 
it's not only that the criminal justice system is um, uh, dangerous and destructive uh, because of the issues of disparities, racial disparities, and destroying lives and communities and economies, um, but it's also the fact that when you criminalize drugs, you make it very hard to actually treat the problems when there is uh, substance abuse going on and when people are dependent and when it is having destructive effects, whatever the substance is. Um, because of the stigmatization, people are more fearful of coming forwards to seek that type of treatment? Yes, and in fact, the overdose crisis is very much related to this right now. People don't call 911 when their friends are overdosing because they're afraid of being, um, you know, incarcerated forever. Right. So, uh, you know... It, good Samaritan laws. Well, Good Samaritan laws, but even just uh, decriminalizing will also uh, promote good, good treatment. If you want to treat, you know, uh, substance abuse, then you have to have um, good policies. And right now, you know, the numbers are staggering. It's not marijuana which is killing people. It's the other drugs of abuse that are killing people. It's a half a million people who've overdosed, who have died through overdosing since the year 2000. That is a staggering public health epidemic. And in order to treat that, you know, it means, number one, offering treatment. We should have treatment on demand. And as well, in addition to legalization, we need to have treatment. Um, and we need to also address underlying causes because you see the, um, the issues of overdose and drug abuse skyrocketing as the economy is tanking. And there's absolute overlap there. Um, you know, there's this new uh, epidemic of drug abuse and overdose in the uh, white, middle-aged, uneducated, that is not college-educated population. And why are they turning to drugs? It's because their lives are being destroyed by the economy. So there's absolute overlap here, and it makes it really important that we have a sort of a, a society-wide approach to the issue of substance abuse. And part of that has to be legalization and treating substance abuse as a public health problem. Thank you so much. There's also a big overlap here between the um, you know prohibition and the war on drugs and the um, and the immigration crisis and the refugee crisis because so many people are fleeing drug violence when they come here fleeing for their lives a hundred thousand people killed in Mexico alone over the last five years or so. It's just staggering. And then people get criminalized not only for being refugees, but they get criminalized for uh, recreational substance use here and then prioritized for deportation. So this is another way that the problems overlap. And I guess the last point I want to leave people with is the, um, is the notion that we have the making of an unstoppable people's movement here. That it's a movement not only for justice, for health, and for freedom. Uh, it's, a, it's a movement also for, um, you know, for an America and a world that works for all of us. It's a movement to stop these insane wars, uh, including the war on drugs, but also the so-called war on terror. Uh, it's a movement to take back our democracy, to ensure that we have health care and education as human rights, and that includes abolishing student debt and making higher education free. This gets at the underpinnings of the um, social drivers here of this uh, crisis of uh, the war on drugs. So there is a comprehensive solution where we can solve all of these problems. We have the power to do that. The cannabis movement has really shown how we can stand up and how we're unstoppable when we stand up together. Thank you so much. Thank After their visit with Dr. Jill Stein, Sarah and Rochelle headed over to Talib Kweli, and here's that portion of the interview. You spoke a lot about the importance of social justice activism, but you've also said before that marijuana legalization specifically isn't your thing. How do you see this movement as connected to the broader work that you are... I mean, it's absolutely connected. It's connected in the same way that every other movement for about people is. The, the, the movement to decriminalize marijuana, the movement to expose the war on drugs, is the same movement as, as mass incarceration. 
Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's the same movement as exposing mass incarceration. Um, it's just that, you know, marijuana is, we live in a first world quote unquote country. It's a luxury. It's, we, we, we have the best weed on earth here in the United States. We're very spoiled and privileged. And um, it's not something that I think that I want to be out in the street. I'm not going to be out in the streets fighting for. But I will support and retweet and watch videos and read high times about people who choose to do that. And show up. Yeah, I'll show up and do the... I mean, I did get paid, so it's also <laughs> self-serving. I'm not here for free. You know what I'm saying? But, I mean, I'll show solidarity with that cause. But my cause is more about people, less about recreational pot smoking. Even though I do enjoy it, just like there's a lot of, uh, I, you know, I, I do consider pot smoking a vice, um, mostly for the smoking part, because smoking anything is, is bad. Um, but if you don't have vices, I can't really trust you as a human being. You know what I'm saying? So it's not something that, you know, I kind of, I judge people who don't have vices. Okay. Yeah. If I can ask one, like, segue question. Um, so we, you mentioned privilege and us in the U.S. as our quote-unquote first world country. So I actually had a really interesting conversation with my Lyft driver on the way here this morning about the privilege that's still, you know, marijuana is legal here in D.C. But Is it? That's good. But that's so, not so, like... So, so Amani was just talking He was like, oh, y'all not as good as L.A. <laughs> oh, no. D.C. legalized before California. Oh, yeah. Oh, so he, was oh, just, yeah. he didn't know what he was talking about. He was just... I mean, I don't know. I don't know Amani, so like, I'm not trying to talk. Go correct him. But we were talking, like, we were talking about how legalization isn't necessarily the silver bullet, right? Like, there's still this layer of privilege, and public consumption is still illegal. So, like, but obviously, it was happening here today, right? So people paid $35 for their ticket, and some people paid $250 for their VIP tickets, and they got to come here and they got to consume under sort of knowing that they wouldn't get busted. But then if you look over this fence right here, there was a whole crowd of people outside that didn't buy tickets and that were still looking into the event. Um, and so I guess my question would be, so one thing about our podcast is we always end with like a call to action. Um, and so if there were something that you could ask that you would have our listeners do, whether it's people who are privileged enough to be able to buy these tickets and come to things like this, or if it's people who can't afford tickets and are literally or figuratively on the outside looking in at like this, what would you say to them or have them do? Um, I would just say you have to acknowledge your, 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 your place and your privilege in society and, and, and actively, actively work against it. If you don't actively work against it, you're enabling it. Um, you know, whether you're a straight person or uh, able-bodied, quote-unquote able-bodied person or, you know, a, a man. Me, personally, I'm a man who was born in Brooklyn, New York, so I'm American. I have a U.S. passport. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of privileges I have. Um, if I don't acknowledge them and don't use the platforms that my privileges grant me to help people who have less privileges than me, then I'm not really doing the right thing. And that's all you can really ask anybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. As always, thanks for listening to This Week in Drugs, and we really appreciate you tuning in. This week, we do have a very special thank you to give to the National Cannabis Festival for hooking us up with some very special interviews that we otherwise would not have had available to us. And we want to once again thank Dr. Jill Stein and Talib Kwali for coming on the show and talking to us about drug policy. If you enjoy what we do here, please make sure to subscribe, rate, comment, share with your friends. You can check out the show notes at thisweekindrugs.org, where you can also find links to sponsor us or become a monthly donor through our Patreon account. We hope you enjoyed this week's show. Our outro song today is Real Estate by Deep Dish.